Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Cool. So here we are, uh, second week of Lent. We're uh, looking at Luke chapter 4, verse 16, uh, through to Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 16. And what's happening here is that uh, Luke has just uh, given us Jesus' credentials. The idea is that he wants us to be certain that we know who Jesus is. And as Jesus begins his ministry, uh, he wants us to be certain that uh, we understand that Jesus came to save. And what we're going to see is uh, a particularly unique way of salvation and a unique uh, group of people that he came to save. But I wanted to start with just the idea that we need salvation, that we are, I think, especially in this time, especially in this space as a culture, we are fully aware that the world needs salvation. And in fact, if we look around at the issues, especially if we look at our social media feeds, uh, we watch uh, the news, whatever it is, uh, we can feel the weight of it. We can feel the weight of the world on our shoulders. Uh, we can feel uh, a little bit overwhelmed. We were in a conversation with a group that's looking at homelessness issue. And as we looked uh, last week, and as we looked at the issue and looked at the complexity of it, now, one of us just said, man, it, it just seems, even with us having simplified the mission a little bit and, and tried to bring clarity to our place in it, it just feels a little bit overwhelming. Like, we we don't know where to start. We don't know exactly what to do. And then we allow our minds to expand beyond the local. We feel the weight of issues in Canada, and we feel the weight of issues all over the world. Uh, we look at, you know, you look at CNN, you see the U.S., you look at Canadian news, you see here, but you look at BBC news and you get a glimpse at the whole world and you know that we have a world that's in need of salvation. And we are uncertain about what we are to do about that. We are uncertain about what our place is in that. And that's the whole purpose of the book of Luke, is to help us find certainty. Uh, in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, he, he describes the purpose of his book as saying that he wants his reader, uh, Theophilus, which could be short for God friends. Uh, we're not sure if it's a person or whether it's talking about all friends of God, but we'll take it for us as friends of God, that we might have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. And that word certainty means to just not be tottering, to not be wobbling, uh, but to be able to strive, be able to walk steadily into what God's calling us with uh, whatever kind of sort of a humble confidence he wants us to have. And with that weight of the world on our shoulders, that sense of, man, this is a daunting task to be his people in the world. Uh, Our knees do wobble, our knees do shake, and we are uncertain. So he's coming to speak to us through this text to strengthen uh, our feeble knees and to help keep us from wobbling. And so in the telling of this piece at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he wants us to be certain, not just about that he is coming to save, but what kind of salvation he is bringing and who that salvation is for. And so if we just take a really quick scan through uh, those two chapters, first chapter 4 and chapter 16, we see Jesus preaching in all of these synagogues, some of them in Judea, some of them outside what would be considered the safe or popular or chic areas of Israel uh, at the time. 
we see a strange encounter where he prays for Simon's mom who has a fever. And that might not just seem strange. He heals her. But everywhere in the Old Testament where you see a fever, it's interpreted as a judgment from God. Everywhere that word appears in the Old Testament. So Jesus is walking into a place where uh, everybody would interpret somebody like Simon's mom as being in some way under judgment for this. And he just, he removes the fever and he just heals her. So he's doing something sort of countercultural there. Uh, he chooses disciples from among blue collar people. Uh, so we see the P, the choosing of Peter uh, and we see like, like he's a fisherman. He's a zealot. He's a rough and tumble kind of blue collar guy. It's not the leader your standard Messiah person would choose. That person would recruit among, among the higher ranks of society so that their ministry can be funded and all kinds of things. He's not targeting the rich. He's uh, coming and aligning himself with blue collar people. Uh, he's healing lepers uh, and, and people who would be considered untouchable, people who would be considered unclean. He's touching them. He calls Levi a tax collector, a person who would be hated in his society, in his culture. Uh, he, he comes to a paralytic, and, and when he's healing that paralytic, he, of course, heals him. But then he says, your sins are forgiven. So he's healing somebody who probably everybody in the room would have known is a sinner in some way, would have known that there is something sort of catastrophically at odds about this person in terms of that person being at odds with the law and being at odds with, uh, with you know, whatever's happening on in the temple. This is a person who is a sinner, who's a disobedient, but Jesus is touching him, a man with a withered hand. And, and again, this is now a healing that's happening on the Sabbath. So he's, he's stretching the limits of people's uh, religious framework. And then, of course, he's doing uh, miracles in Tyre and Sidon, uh, which are uh, in the Old Testament considered to be sort of unrepentant cities that are in the category of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they just didn't get smoked. So uh, he's, he's, he's really going to a strange group of people, and he's bringing a strange kind of salvation. He's not just... Uh, dealing with the problem that they were expecting, the overthrow of Rome, that's what they wanted to see happen, was for people to just, you know, cast off the Romans and they could be their own society and do their own thing and not worry about their moral life, not worry about their spiritual life. They could fix that later, but just get rid of Rome. But Jesus is going deep into all of these sort of inner issues. And that's what we're going to see happen as it plays out in the text that we're looking at. Um, but he offers these unusual forms of deliverance for an unexpected sampling of people. And so we're going to note who those people are, and we're going to see how uh, we align with that. Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 4, 16 uh, to 30. And that's the story of Jesus coming and speaking in the synagogue. Um, so he goes into Nazareth, he speaks in a synagogue, and he gives a sermon that ultimately ends in them wanting to kill him. But we're going to see how that plays out and see why his message is particularly challenging for the people in that place. Uh, so here we are. I'm uh, just going to read the text here. Luke uh, chapter 4, 16 to 30. We're just going to read the first chunk, talk about it, read a chunk, talk about it. It says this, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I'm just going to pause there for a second and just look at the synagogue. Uh, the picture on your screen shows what a synagogue would have looked like in that time. Uh, it would have been sort of the community would have come together in Nazareth and saved their money and worked together and built a fairly large stone building. This actually is a reflection of the ruins of the synagogue at Nazareth, so in terms of scale and the way it's set up. Uh, so you've got a big meeting area in here. You can see that there are bench seats where people would all be able to sit. 
Um, over here is a ritual bath. Uh, this little section here is where the scrolls would have been stored. And so Jesus basically comes into there. The whole community is gathered. Um, and he stands up to read, which is just an interesting note. Uh, we don't really think about standing particularly to read the scriptures, but no Jewish person would ever sit to read the scriptures. Uh, we'll see in the next verse that they actually sit down for the preaching. So the preacher reads the scriptures standing up and then sits down to preach because he doesn't want to signal that what he has to say is more important than the scriptures. So maybe a little note to myself as a preacher and a note to us about uh, the importance of what I have to say versus the importance of what uh, the Bible has to say. But he goes on, and he reads this text from Isaiah 61, which we read earlier this morning. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I want to just touch this idea of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor first, uh, and just note that that's what they would have been longing to hear. They would have been sort of longing to hear that, hey, the Lord is coming finally to deliver us from Rome. He's coming finally to set us up with our own king. He's coming finally to set us free from the bondage uh, that this political entity, this military entity Rome has over us. And they would be seeing that as a people, as that being their presenting problem. And this word that Isaiah uh, speaks to them across the years, now spoken through Jesus' mouth in the synagogue, is a word that is proclaiming their freedom, that finally a time has come when Messiah is going to set them free uh, from that. But what we see in the text, what we see in this verse, and, and Luke is a very interesting writer on it because he's the only writer who's not writing in the Hebrew language. So when he quotes this text from Isaiah, he quotes it uh, and translates it into Greek and uses some particular words in that translation that speak to uh, the deeper meaning that he understands Jesus was talking about as he read the text. So remember, everybody's sitting there. Jesus has just read. They're kind of lighting up. They're like, I love this. This is like the happy part of this. We're just talking about the salvation. We're talking about celebration. We're talking about the end of Rome. This is great. And they're sort of perking up. They're sort of interested. Um, but Luke is saying, hey, Jesus has some different meaning here hidden in these words. And so the first thing I want to notice is the word proclaim uh, that's used in the text. Um, Jesus has come to say something. Jesus has come to use his words, and that word, you know, those words proclaim really mean that. They mean just use words. It's not just demonstrate. He does demonstrate the coming of the kingdom in, in all of his miracles. They're parables. Uh, but he has something to say, something he wants people to hear. And what's really interesting about that word proclaim, uh, in particular the first one, when it says proclaim the good news, uh, it's the word egazelio, which is the word... I, I pronounced that totally wrong, but it's the word uh, f that we now have for evangelism. So that word is used all the way through the New Testament, all the way through Timothy, uh, when Paul is telling Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, to go out and preach the gospel. That's the word that Jesus is using for his message. So there is a message of the gospel, his salvation, that is coming out through his mouth in a way 
that is uh, meant to impact the minds and the hearts of the people. Um, and, and you could be listening to that. Remember, you're still sitting in the synagogue with all of the people who are there, and they're they're hearing what he is saying, but they're imagining that he's talking about an overarching political deliverance. But Jesus is coming in with a meaning that says, no, no, I have something that I want to proclaim to you personally. There is a message there. If Jesus is proclaiming something, it presupposes that there is something that we need to know. Jesus' proclamation proclamation presupposes our ignorance, to to put it uh, a fine point on it. It presupposes that we have to be in a different place. It, It presupposes that he's calling us to become listeners. He's calling us to become people who hear him, uh, people who will respond to his word. And when we hear that word listen in the scriptures, it always doesn't just, it doesn't just mean like hear it, it means obey. So there's a call to obedience in this. So we notice the proclamation and we see that in Jesus' ministry. He goes out and preaches and he goes out and demonstrates. And so he, ho- he holds those two things in balance. Uh, the other thing we want to note in here is the word liberty. Again, that's a unique Greek word that Paul uses to infuse the idea of freedom with a specific meaning. So when the people in the synagogue all gathered around on those stone benches that we saw a few moments earlier, they would have heard proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, they would be saying, yeah, that's me. Rome is oppressing me. Uh, Rome is, um, I, I need to be free from Rome. We need to get rid of these people. We need to kick these soldiers out. We need to get rid of these taxes. So they're, they're saying, yes, they're excited about this message. But when Luke later translates it, the word that he uses for liberty um, is to declare forgiveness or pardon for a crime in a legal sense. So Jesus is taking this uh, word liberty that everybody is excited about and saying, uh, hey guys, um, Luke is saying what Jesus was talking about here wasn't just liberty from Rome. What Jesus was talking about here was uh, pardon for your sins. Jesus was talking about something much deeper here. He was talking about something that was going to affect you on the inside. He was really talking about your spiritual life. So just like that word declare presupposes that there is something we need to listen to, in Luke's writing, that word liberty presupposes that there is something for which we're guilty. It presupposes there's something inside of us that's broken that needs to be fixed. Our overarching problem, the problem of our society, the problem of our politics, the problem of our government, isn't the real problem. Jesus is pointing uh, to something deeper. So if Jesus is speaking about our pardon, will we admit our guilt or will we admit our captivity? So there's a fundamental challenge to our identity in what Jesus is saying. And we're going to see, he puts a finer point on it a little bit later. Uh, he's, he's, going to, uh, he's going to touch it in a, in a deep way. So here it is. Um, the, remember the questions that we were asking at the beginning, what Luke wants us to be certain about. What kind of salvation is he calling us to? So while people are expecting political and social salvation, Jesus is signaling a deeper need for an intellectual and a spiritual salvation. He's signaling that there's something more, there's something deeper, that there's a problem underneath the problem that he is intending to address. Um, and and we'll go further to say the only path, and this is for us as we think about our mission, the only path to any true and lasting salvation, so, social, political, or other, otherwise, comes with 
us receiving pardon for our sin and us embracing his gospel, his message of the kingdom. So the salvation that he is coming to bring is a salvation uh, from our sin, from our bondage, from our inability to act rightly. And it's a salvation uh, that leads us to the embrace of his kingdom. And that really just means an embrace of his leadership that we would become people who would serve him, that we would become people who would listen to him and obey him and begin to live in a different way. And so the next thing we want to see in that, in that uh, that text that he read, again, Luke using unique words and bringing some fresh meaning into it, is the people to whom he's speaking, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, um, aren't, aren't those words for us, we read them uh, from a particular framework. We read them as people who are just soaked in a materialistic culture, in a materialistic world. Worldview. So when we think poor, we think materially poor. When we think captive, we think somebody who is in jail. When we think blind, we think somebody who is physically blind. And when we think oppressed, we think of somebody who is uh, enslaved or under leadership that is hurting them. And it does mean those things. It absolutely, in the Hebrew and Greek world, means those physical things. But Jesus and the Hebrew mind doesn't see people through a materialistic lens. When Jesus is announcing the good news to the poor, he is talking about the economic poor, and he's talking about the spiritually poor. And the, the Jewish mind, again, doesn't see through a materialistic lens. When Jesus is announcing sight for the blind, he is talking to the physically blind, and he's also talking to the spiritually blind, you and I, who can't see, who can't hear, who can't, who can't get it. He's offering us a sense of freedom and a sense of salvation that is much more. So who is salvation for? Again, the people in that, uh, in that synagogue, sitting on those benches that we looked at earlier, are hearing Jesus say, okay, he's going to set free uh, the blind. He's going to set free the sick. That's going to be a sign to us of his authority and power uh, to drive out Rome. That's ultimately his end. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I don't want you to just understand uh, the the." physical blindness. I don't want you to just focus on those miracles. I want you to focus on the, what the message behind them. I want you to focus on uh, the freedom that is really meant to come uh, with my ministry. So who is salvation for? Salvation is for those who humbly know and admit and admit their deepest need for salvation. It's not just for those of us who know that we are physically oppressed, those of us who know that we are physically blind or we, we have a physical need. The salvation is for those of us who know in our deepest heart of hearts that we have a real and true need inside of us and we need Jesus to come. And that's what he's coming for. So that's just that reading of that text, some things that we want to pick, some things that Luke wanted us to see in there. Um, so then Jesus just comes, and I'm just going to continue reading. He rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sat down. You remember we talked about that. So he sits down to preach uh, because he doesn't want his preaching to be seen as more important than the written word of God. That's, again, a, a piece of wisdom for us and points us to the scriptures. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, it, is not this Joseph's son? Like he's like, Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I, I can't believe that somebody from our neighborhood could speak like this or speak with this authority or maybe be the Messiah or be the person who is going to help us uh, get free from this oppression that we're under, uh, the oppression of Rome, the political oppression that is, that is hurting us and harming us. 
So they're very excited at this moment. But by verse 30, we're going to see that they're ready to throw him off a cliff. Because they didn't really hear what he was saying. And this is just a huge warning for us. It is so dangerous for us to externalize the preaching of the gospel. To say, those others, they sure need to hear that message. Or that might apply to the political world, something outside myself, but I'm all good. Like if that's our posture when we're hearing the preaching of the gospel, we're evaluating it and saying, yeah, uh, I, I'm learning something from this because uh, I agree with everything that's in it. Yeah, that sounds great. If you're agreeing with everything that I'm saying to you right now, if you're like affirming, yeah, this is fantastic, uh, the, the word of God, then, then maybe you're not hearing the level of challenge that I think Jesus is bringing to us. He's bringing us to a different kind of salvation. And, and we live, like, we live in a culture. Again, we know the world needs salving, saving. We know that it's broken. We know it. But what Jesus is saying to us here is, but do you know your need? Do you know your brokenness? Do you know your sin? And so we have to take the word of God as it's preached to us in the scriptures and, and internalize it. Uh, he says to them, this is where he's like, okay, so I said, hey, the scripture's fulfilled in your hearing. Um, mic drop, boom, everybody's happy. And he realizes everybody's happy. And he's like, okay, so we're going to put a finer point in this and on this and, and help them really understand. So he says to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable or honored in his hometown. So what's happening there is uh, they've all heard that he's done some miracles in Capernaum, another town down the way, and they're excited about it. And they're like, okay, so do those miracles here uh, because we want to be part of this story of uh, setting us free from sort of the oppression of Rome. We, we want to be part of it. We, we're in. We're, we want to be part of the story. Um, and there's a common proverb in that space and time to just say, hey, physician, heal yourself, which is, hey, what you did out there that was so great, do some of that for us. Do some of that for us as well. And Jesus uh, puts those words in their mouth, say, that's what you're saying. You want to just be part of this sort of miracle working thing. You want to see that happen. You want to see this physical deliverance that you're imagining. But then he says, this is truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable or honored in his hometown. What he's saying to them there is that, uh, hey, I am not a doctor who is just here to deal with your physical ailments. I'm not here to put a band-aid on your problems. I'm not here to solve this over problem that you see there. I'm a prophet who is coming here to call you to repent and to follow. Don't see me just as a physician who wants to fix something on the outside. See me as something who wants to speak a word that's going to go to you and touch you on the inside. I'm not a physician. I'm a prophet. I'm not a politician. I'm a prophet. And he's speaking to a very different kind of ministry. And we're going to see that ministry walked out in the rest of his life. So again, we're back to our first original two questions. What kind of salvation? Jesus' miracles are not intended to point us just to physical deliverance, but to spiritual deliverance and kingdom obedience. 
So when we look at the miracles of, of Jesus, we looked at, at, at what we sampled in, verse, in the first two chapters, in 4 and 6, sorry, uh, 4, 5, 6. Um, all of those miracles that he did are miracles that are a parable. All of those miracles are speaking to uh, dealing with the sense of judgment in, say, um, Peter's mom, or dealing with a sense of religiosity in the people who are observing uh, his healing of the man with the withered hand. All of the miracles are parables. Uh, speaking to a deeper issue, speaking to a spiritual deliverance that's needed and kingdom obedience that's needed. Remember, we looked at the story of the man who uh, was healed um, but was had his sins forgiven at the same time, right? So Jesus is after that heart stuff, right? So that's the kind of salvation he's calling them to. And they're beginning to get agitated. Remember all those people sitting on the benches, they're beginning to get worried. This is not sounding quite right anymore. Uh, what's going on? Um, and he puts a finer point on it still. It says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. None of those people with the over problem, none of those people with the famine, none of those people with the uh, issue that they thought was the issue. But he was only sent to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was uh, a widow. So that's amazing, right? He uh, goes to this person who knows her need. He goes to this person who is... Uh, broken, who's not even of the 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 company, uh, the the nation of Israel, and he he reaches out to her, even when there were so many with need in Israel, because he saw in her a meek heart, in a heart, a heart that needs to know. And he goes on, he goes, uh, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian was not an Israelite. But he was a person who came to Jesus, and the words that came out of his mouth were, I know I'm not worthy. I know you're Israel's prophet, but would you touch me anyway? So again, he comes with a meekness, and he comes with a humility. So both the widow and Naaman come with this statement of their need and this real honesty about their unworthiness. So we're asking the second question again, who is salvation for? Again, we're going back and forth. We're asking, uh, what is the kind of salvation he is bringing and who is it for? Well, he's coming not to the righteous and to the entitled, but to those with humble hearts who know their need. And the people in the synagogue at this point flip out because he's called them on their entitlement. He's called them on their pride. He's called them on their sense that, hey, we have this together. Uh, we're the nation of Israel. Uh, kick out the Romans, and we're the greatest thing the world has ever seen. We're salvation to the nations. Uh, so, so deal with this Rome thing, and we're going to kick butt, right? And he's not interested in that sense of entitlement at all. He's interested in hearts that can admit their sin and their brokenness and their need. And so when he calls them on that, uh, this is what happens. When they hear these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
So they become enraged. They become angry. They're like, what do you mean you're coming to, to these people? You're coming to Tyre and Sidon? You mean you're coming to all of these people who are, are sinners? You're coming to all of these people who are broken? All of these people who are, who are needy? You're not coming to just do the deliverance we want you to do? You're not coming to do some tricks to make us happy and put on a show for us? And they're enraged and they want to throw him off a cliff. And he just sort of quietly, you know, by some miracle of the Spirit, walks through the crowd. And I just want to say this, like this is a fear that I think we should, we should carry in our hearts. We do not want our entitlement as believers to have us in the place where Jesus might pass through our midst. Because we don't realize we need saving. We don't realize we need him to touch us. We don't realize we need him to disciple us. We don't realize we need him to change us. We don't want him to be someone who passes through our midst. We want him to be somebody who wants to dwell with us. And he's only going to dwell with us if we have humble hearts. He's only going to dwell with us if we start by knowing our need, by knowing our brokenness, by knowing our need uh, to be discipled and transformed. So again, back to our two questions. What kind of salvation? There's a warning to us in this text. We will never truly see his power until we come to grips with our truest problems. If we want him to move in power in our lives and in our church, if we want him to grow our church, if we want him to reach our neighborhood, if we want him to reach uh, the people of Carlton Place and Almont and Smith Falls and Perth, it has to start with our repentance. It has to start with us knowing that we need his power so we can be the people who will do the things he's calling us to. We'll never see his power until we come to grips with our, honestly, with our, our truest problems. And back to the second question, who is salvation for? Salvation's for us. Salvation's for you. Salvation's for me. We can't offer anything meaningful to the poor until we realize we are the poor. Until we realize that we have the need. Until we realize that we depend daily on him to transform us and to make us new. So uh, Luke uh, wants Theophilus, this friend of God, and we, friends of God, to be certain about something. And that is just simply this. We can't get out there and save the world with Jesus until we admit we need to be saved by Jesus. We need to come humbly before him as a church, as a body, as a community, and seek him and say, will you transform us into people who can transform the world? Who we are now, we, we can't do it. We are overwhelmed. Our knees are shaking. Our knees are knocking. Uh, we are wobbly. We need to know your salvation. We need to know your power in a new and fresh way. And then that's just a simple thought that he loves you. And he wants to save you. He wants to set you free from all of those things that you do that uh, you wish you did not do. He wants to uh, make it possible for you to uh, proclaim the gospel to evangelize when you've been scared of it your whole life. He wants 
you to be a person who isn't filled with shame over your guilt and over your sin. But he has to come and he has to touch it. And he, we have to admit we have it. And we have to come back again and again and again to the cross. And let him save us. Uh, so that we can be useful at all in his salvation as it's expressed in the world. And so we'll just close with this simple question. And Matt, you can come ahead up and help us with the Q&A in a moment. But the simple question is, is in what area of my life do I still need Jesus' salvation? There's a way in which when you gave your heart to Jesus, if you're a Christian here, that you are positionally saved, that you are, uh, you have a ticket. You are on a journey that leads ultimately to eternity. So there is a way in which you are saved, but there is a way in which you and I are still being saved. So what is the area of your life in which uh, you need to be meekly sitting on the benches of Jesus' synagogue and saying, I need to be saved? And to just come, maybe with tears, maybe with weeping, with repentance to him, and say, oh Jesus, won't you transform me? So that I can be useful, so that I can be in your presence, so that I can do this journey with you. It's the call, I think, to us in this, uh, to repent, that we can be recipients of the kind of salvation that he has for us, and we can reach and be the people that he wants to reach. So, let's, uh, why don't we just pray? Father, thank you so much. Matt, maybe you should just, when you pray. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, Father. Um, yeah, in this moment, we look into our hearts, and, um, and, and we see the truth of this. We see the brokenness. We see the pain. Um, we see the parts of us that are, are not whole. Um, maybe despite our best masks or our best abilities to ignore that pain, um, we see the brokenness. Um, for those of us who, who do know you and who follow after you, um, uh, even though we can also look in there and see your healing, and we can see the ways that you've been transforming us, um, we just recognize that there's so much more of our heart that has left to be transformed. Mm -hmm. yes, Lord. Um, and in this moment, uh, we turn to you. Um, yeah, we turn to you just saying, Jesus, again, um, we need you. Uh, we, we lift up our hearts to you. And we say, Jesus, we need you. We need you to transform us. Um, we know that um, healing and life and goodness, uh, peace and love is only going to flow through us as you become real in our life. Um, uh, we, we turn to you saying, Jesus, we trust you. And um, we trust that you are the answer. You are the answer for, um, you are the answer for, for our country. You are the answer um, for our nation. You're the answer for our community. Um, you're, you're the answer for our friends and our families. Um, you're the answer for the turmoil and uh, what it is that we experience on the inside. So Jesus, we just, uh, yeah, we trust you. And um, we turn to you, we say, yeah, and in this moment we just come saying, please, would you transform our hearts? And as you fill us with your love and as you fill us with your power, as you fill us with your grace and your peace, and as you continue to transform us, we pray just that you would, that you would take us and that you would use us. Would we be instruments, um, conduits of your power and of your life and of your, 
of your goodness. And we pray for this town, this area. We pray for our friends and our family who don't know you. We pray for our brothers and sisters, uh, those who, who do uh, walk with you. We pray just that, that your light would come. We pray that your kingdom would come. Uh, yeah, we pray for all of these things in your name, Jesus. Just again, proclaiming our need for you. Uh, we love you. May you be our focus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And maybe you're listening, you're part of our community, and or you're just listening in. We don't always know who's here, but you're sort of looking at your life and, and you know, you're wondering about this person, Jesus, that we're speaking about. And, and you've heard about him and you've heard us speak about him before and you've heard about him in the Bible. Um, but you're, there's something in you right now in this moment that is just sort of saying, whoa, I need, I think, that salvation that he offers. I need forgiveness for my sins. I need my heart to be cleansed. I need to be set free from my guilt and my shame. Um, if you're there and you're saying that, then, then know that Jesus loved you so much that he gave himself up to die on a cross to pay for your sin, to pay for your brokenness, that it, that it wasn't, it was a ministry of a, of a beautiful life of teaching in, in Galilee and in Judea and in Jerusalem, uh, but it ended in a sacrifice to pay everything for you and for me, and that that's a gift that is just offered to you freely uh, if you'd only receive it. If you'd only simply say, Jesus, uh, I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know that I have wounded others and that I have wounded you. I need your forgiveness and your grace. I need that sacrifice that you did for me on the cross. And if you can say that in your heart, then just invite him into your heart. Like, Jesus, please come and live in my heart today. Please come and start me on this journey of following you today. Uh, please transform my life. And if you just prayed that prayer, uh, just encourage you to reach out. I encourage you to um, uh, speak to one of us, speak to Matt or myself or a friend in the chat and, and signal that you've given your life to Jesus and we can help you begin to walk and begin to follow him and begin to uh, love him. So I yeah, want to make that invitation to you to follow Jesus. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.